everyone, and welcome to episode six of Natural Gas World's In a Nutshell podcast. Uh, I'm Dale Lunen, America's editor for Natural Gas World, and I'm joined today by Lisa Vicitti, director of the Energy, Climate, and Extractive Industries Program at the Inter-American Dialogue in Houston. Lisa is a specialist in Latin American energy and environment issues, and she's written numerous reports uh, and articles on energy and policy regulations in that region. She's here today to discuss her latest study for the Inter-American Dialogue, an examination of the role national oil companies in Latin America can play in decarbonization and the energy transition. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've I've read through the report, um, and if you could just kind of in keeping with our theme of in a nutshell, could you just give us a broad sense of how you characterize the effectiveness of, of Latin American NOCs in pursuing in a, I guess in reducing primarily scope one emissions, because that seems to be the target of most of them. Are they handcuffed by existing government policies or are they able to kind of go out on their own? Sure. So um, I, I think that, that we did find um, in looking at the strategies for mitigation and for the role of NOCs in the energy transition, a lot of successful scope, scope one emissions reduction strategies. So, for example, Petrobras, the NOC of Brazil, is doing a lot in CO2 injection. Uh, Pemex has made great strides in reducing flaring. It, it's improving efficiency at its refineries. Um, so, for example, its emissions from refining declined by 33 uh, percent between 2010 and 2018, and flaring was cut in half just between 2016 and 2017 and declined again further in 2018. Um, Ecopetrol has reduced methane leaks. Petro Amazonas, uh, the uh, company of Ecuador, has avoided flaring of millions of cubic feet of gas and it's been using natural gas to replace diesel for power generation at its operations. Um, so those are some of the, the things that we found. I think in some cases, regulations force companies to go further. So for example, Pemex had to comply with methane reduction regulations. But yeah. in most cases, the companies, the what we saw is that mostly they took these measures because they brought cost reductions or efficiencies. Uh, so for example, Pedro Amazonas, the Ecuadorian firm, uh, switching to use natural gas, it was much cheaper than using than using diesel. Um, and this re reducing flaring, fuel switching, uh, saved them about $177 million just in 2018. Um, so I think in most of the cases, it's, it's, it's issues like this where they're able to improve efficiencies. That was the main driver. Uh, I think for scope one emissions, the government didn't hurt progress. They didn't stop them from doing anything, but I don't think they pushed them to do very much either. Mm -hmm. For scope three, I would even say that in some cases, the government actually tried to block further progress or was really not supportive of further progress. And we could get into that uh, later on. But would that, well, we might as well get into it right now. It, would that be because, I mean, a lot of the economies that we're talking about here are, are not what you would call the most robust and and scope three uh, reduction initiatives would really um, kind of hit consumers where they where they hurt in the pocketbook is that a reason perhaps the government didn't pursue scope three as as aggressively as they might have 
Well, I think the concern is more about how it affects the finances of the companies themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the the main argument for tax, uh, the main argument that we see against transitioning these companies to really be clean energy companies and lower uh, emissions in the products for their consumers is an economic one, especially in this moment. So, for example, in Brazil, Petrobras had expanded its scope of activities in the past, in, including investing in biofuels, but Petrobras had expanded so broadly that it had taken on so much debt that it actually lost investment grade in 2015. It became the most indebted oil company in the world. Then, after the president at the time, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached, the presidents who took over after that, first her vice president Temer and now Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, they put CEOs in charge where the number one priority was to get Petrobras back on financially sustainable footing. And so the current CEO of Petrobras, Castelo Branco, has argued many times in public when asked, um, he has said that Petrobras should not focus on producing clean energy, that producing oil is what's profitable, it's what the company is good at, and that's what it should focus on. So I think it's his, the main concern is not that uh, there would be higher costs for consumers, but that Petrobras itself is just, that's not the best thing for the company it's if you look at it here. from profitability. And it's a very similar situation in Argentina. Um, Argentina is facing a, a really severe debt crisis. It's had to renegotiate its debt with international creditors. It's going to have to go back and renegotiate with the IMF. Its state oil company, YPF, just released really dismal quarterly earnings a few days ago, mostly because there's been a steep drop in fuel demand as a result of the lockdowns in Argentina because of the pandemic, like we're seeing everywhere Mm -hmm. in the world. So under the last government before, under Mauricio Macri, who stepped down in December, YPF had done a lot in scope three emissions. It had created its own electric utility that sold renewable energy to consumers. Um, But I think now the current president, Alberto Fernandez, is reversing course. He's really concerned about their economic crisis, um, and so you know has different priorities. And his president for YPF, the current president Guillermo Nielsen, has also made comments in public saying essentially YPF shouldn't be producing renewable energy. That's not the most profitable. That's not the best thing for the company, and it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the report also mentions that a lot of these NOCs are. are heavily weighted to oil, which is a bit of a departure from most of the IOCs that operate uh, everywhere else. Uh, there's it, the, med, the report mentions that some of these NOCs have expressed a desire to get more into natural gas. Uh, so I, I guess a two-part question. First, do they, do they have access to domestic resources of natural gas? and the infrastructure to to produce and distribute it and and use it and b do they have uh the corporate ability to expand outside their own borders and and look at opportunities gas opportunities elsewhere in the world so i mean it's right in terms of transitioning to clean energy sources a lot of the latin american nocs did claim that Uh, focusing on boosting natural gas production was a part of their strategy. So they said, you know, they embraced natural gas as a bridge fuel and said part of our strategy is to produce more gas, which is cleaner than oil. 
but when we actually looked at the numbers, except for YPF, the Argentine company, which has a, a oil to gas ratio of about 50-50, um, mm. all of the other companies that we looked at produce much more oil than gas. So the oil to gas ratio is more around 80-20 for most of the other companies, which is a lot higher share of oil than we see for the international majors, which have a, a more equal share or closer to 50-50. Um, but all of, almost all of the countries do have large gas resources. I think that as state oil companies, they are mostly focused on developing resources in their own countries. Um, there was a time when Petrobras was expanding more abroad, but as it decided, as the leadership decided it needed to get more focused and not spread itself too thin, the, and, and as they discovered the pre-salt with so much potential, they've decided to focus on Brazil. All the companies are really focused on their own countries, the vast majority, and almost all of them have large gas resources. Argentina, of course, has huge shale resources. Uh, Mexico has uh, large untapped natural gas reserves in associated gas in the Gulf of Mexico and shale gas in the north. Brazil has huge associated gas resources in the pre-salt offshore, which has a high gas content. Colombia has a lot of gas off the Caribbean coast and Ecopetrol is exploring there. Um, of the five countries we looked at, only Ecuador doesn't have such large gas reserves. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think a major reason that the national oil companies haven't yet really developed their gas reserves as much as oil is because, again, producing oil is more profitable. So they've always been encouraged to focus more on oil than gas. I think that could change if there are more developed markets for gas in the country, if there are more opportunities. So in Mexico, I don't because Mexico doesn't have an incentive to develop, to develop its gas because it's importing huge quantities of cheap, cheap gas from pipelines. Cheaper to import it from the U.S., yeah. Exactly. So, you know, really, the, 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 the president says that he wants Mexico to be independent, but really the incentives are not there economically. Um, I do think Brazil is going to see an increase in domestic gas production. Uh, Brazil has very high natural gas prices. And there's a law going through Congress that would reduce gas prices by forcing Petrobras to give third-party access to its pipeline network. And that could make a big difference, giving companies an incentive to monetize their pre-salt gas um, and just opening up the gas market. Um, Colombia is facing shortages of natural gas. It's actually had to import LNG. And mm -hmm. so Ecopetrol is really keen to explore and develop the gas resources. Um, and then, of course, Argentina has always been very reliant on natural gas for power and heating. So Argentina had a strong incentive to develop its gas resources. It, the Argentine gas resources, their their major one is the Vacuum Huerta shale. Is that is that correct? That's the major new resource. I mean, it's, Argentina also has a lot of conventional gas that they've been mm -hmm. producing for a long time. Uh, but in terms of you know, a big new area to develop. It's really the shale. And I think um, we're going to see, you know, increasingly a larger share of their gas is coming from shale than conventional. Because I, I know about a year ago, there was, a, there was a big push, but it seems to have kind of died off. Now, I don't know if that's because of um, the falling price of natural gas in the global markets or uh, whether there's local opposition to fracking in, in the vacuum Muerta or just do you have any insight as to what might be slowing things down there? Yes, I think it's a series of things. Um, there have been problems, long-standing problems with infrastructure. Um, there's not enough pipelines to bring the gas out. You know, it's a very remote area. There's not enough pipelines to bring it out to Buenos Aires, to ports. 
So that's been an issue. The costs are higher. Um, partly the labor costs are very high. They've made some agreements with the unions um, to address that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's much more expensive than producing in the US. And then more recently, you have a president who uh, comes from uh, the same party as the previous president who, uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, before Macri, who introduced a lot of policies that were not favorable to investment, um, you know, price controls, export limits, uh, the ability to expatriate profits was limited. And so there's just a sense of uncertainty. And then now with, you know, a drop in global prices and global demand, you know, I, I think it's not surprising that, that things have really slowed down. Mm -hmm. uh, Mexico has, has always uh, made a point of they want to increase their domestic gas production. Uh, but at the same time, AMLO hasn't exactly been um, seen as being terribly supportive of, of the uh, investment, either on an environmental perspective or from a, a cash perspective in that. Is that, is that, is, is Mexico ever going to produce natural gas or are they just going to continue to rely on the cheap gas from the U.S.? I think that they will continue to rely on cheap gas from the U.S. for a long time. Um, as part of his energy sovereignty objective, AMLO has had said that he wanted to make Mexico independent in natural gas production and reduce reliance on imports from the U.S. Um, but imports from the U.S. have been higher than ever in the last, you know, since he took office. So mm -hmm. I, I really don't think any progress has been made there. Um, and I don't think that will change because ultimately the problem is that Pemex, um, it has declining oil production, so it has declining associated gas production. Uh, it doesn't have the financial ability to really develop the non-associated gas. So, I mean, if you, if you put all the responsibility in the hands of Pemex and Pemex isn't able to produce oil and gas or increase it, then I, I don't see how you can get around imports. So I, I see that continuing. Okay. Um, you mentioned before that that regulations sometimes can do a better job of incenting uh, the national oil companies in in taking emission reduction measures. Um, Mexico is is fairly robust in in emissions monitoring and reductions. Can can that alone kind of offset uh, political laissez-faire uh, with regard to reducing emissions? And well, is, is that common throughout Latin America or is kind of Mexico the outlier with the with the strong regulations well, that actually I think, work? I mean, there's, I think there, I, I don't think overall that has um, across the board really strong regulations. I think there are a couple of specific examples like the methane regulations, uh, which was actually came about from cooperation, a trilateral cooperation um, under the Obama administration with the US and Canada. I think that really helped Mexico along. Um, AMLO has very tight control over the energy sector, including over its regulators. Um, and he's actually pushed out regulators uh, in energy and environment who tried to stand up to him and assert their independence. So I really don't 
scenario in which Mexico is going to tighten its climate regulations under AMLO. He has a lot of control over that, and I don't think that's a priority for him. Um, fortunately, some of the important regulations were already in place, so the, that continues, um, but I don't think we're going to see further progress on that front. And the other kind of, I think the regulatory framework for emissions reductions is generally weak, and action, what we saw is that action really depends on the companies themselves taking the lead. They're not a lot of cases where they've been pushed really far by the government. And that might have to do also with the fact that there's very little public pressure for the Latin American NOCs to address climate change. I mean, here in the US, we see you know activists uh, bringing court cases against oil companies for their you know, claiming that they, they have a responsibility for climate change. There's nothing like that going on in any Latin American country. So if there's no public, if there's no public pressure for them to do more, you know, maybe there's no incentive for the governments to push them. Uh, but we do see that their own leaders, you know, their, their own staff even, sometimes we even see that has seen cases where it was a bottom up approach where, you know, the, the um, executives working in the NOC really pushed to do more on climate change. Um, and they're also influenced by the international context, the fact that they're partnering all the time on projects with IOCs, they pick up, you know, they follow some of the same procedures. So I think that's more where the impetus comes from more than government regulation. You mentioned that there isn't the public pressure uh, to decarbonize. Why do you think that is in Latin America? Is it just is are are they just all so aware of how important natural resources are to their economies or um is it just is there something else going on there that well i mean i think you know it's i i do think that um there's a lot of concern about climate change as an issue in latin america i mean polls show that it's the region in the world where the highest number of people express concern about climate change. So there's definitely awareness. It affects a lot of Latin American countries more than other parts of the world. So there's concern about it. Um, but I also think that con other concerns are more pressing for people. Um, you know, their economic situation, dealing mm -hmm. with poverty and inequality, corruption, security. Those issues are much more important to voters than to most voters than climate change. So I think maybe that's why, you know, they'll say they're concerned, but they're, but there's not a lot of action to really pressure their national oil companies to do more. Um, and also I think there's a sense of that the oil companies belong to the people. And so you don't have this sense of sort of outside pressure, like as, as an outsider, we need to force them to change. Um, and some of them have uh, private shareholders, but most of them are fully government owned. Uh, and if they don't, if they have private shareholders, it's only the government is still the majority shareholder. And so you also don't have this, you know, investor pressure that you have with the IOCs. So I think those are all factors. I, I haven't seen too many Greenpeace dinghies pull up beside a, a semi-sub drilling in the in the pre-salt off Brazil. Why is there no international uh, attention on on decarbonization or emissions reductions in Latin America? Is it just they've got bigger fish to fry or is it just easier to do it in Canada and the US and the North Sea? I'm not sure why there's, you know, less 
national focus. I mean, I think there should be because there's a lot that these companies could do. Um, I mean, you know, transitioning from an oil company to a renewable energy company is very hard. And it's very questionable whether any company is going to achieve that. It's a completely different business model. So, you know, it's that that's tricky, but there's a lot of low hanging fruit. There's a lot more that these companies could do. Um, and, and even things that would be economically favorable. So, you know, for example, Petrobras is doing a lot in CO2 reinjection in pre-salt fields. Ecopatrol is improving satellite monitoring for methane leaks and building renewable energy projects for its own, for generation for its own operations. Um, as I said earlier, Petro Amazonas is replacing fuel oil with natural gas. These are all, you know, relatively cost-effective actions that can be taken. And so I think there should be more emphasis um, on, you know, at least putting pressure on these companies to do the, the minimum and things that are, are low-hanging fruit. Um, but, you know, I think maybe it's because other, they're, like you said, other bigger fish to fry. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, the scale of oil production and emissions from these companies is not, you know, it's it's not um, as large as major companies like Saudi Aramco. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, maybe they're overlooked because the impact is smaller, but I do think there should be more focus on this. Can you, can you kind of put a, a scale or a perspective on, on exactly where uh, GHG emissions emanating from, from these five, uh, five countries kind of sit in, in the global pantheon are we talking top 10 bottom 10 somewhere in the middle well we didn't do um, a comparison with other companies we did a comparison among the five companies that mm. we looked at not surprisingly the ones that, that were the biggest oil producers also had the highest emissions mm -hmm. so you know petrobras and pemex are by far have have the highest production and so they also had the highest direct emissions when you look at it per barrel of oil and gas produced, there's a, it varies a lot more. You know, it's it's um, YPF in the year we looked at had very high uh, emissions per barrel of oil. They have a very high share of their emissions come from methane, so perhaps that's the reason. So we did not we did not do that exercise, but based on the comparison of the five companies, I would say that um, the they you know some of some of them are large oil producers. So Petrobras is the largest producing over 3 million barrels per day. So, you know, that's one of the, it's not in the top three, but it's one of the largest oil producing countries in the world. But some of these others are, it's much smaller, you know, under a million barrels a day in Colombia and Ecuador. So I would say on a global scale, their direct emissions are going to be very small if you're looking yeah. at, you know, all of the companies in the world. Yeah, the reason I ask is because Canada, also, you know, often gets gets uh, slammed by the NGOs for for the emissions that that we produce. But I mean, in a global context, we're about six percent uh, of of total, and then you know, the oil sands, which are the big target, is like two percent. Um, so I'm just, you know, it seems to be a disproportionate amount of attention paid to some countries as as opposed to other countries but like you say maybe they're they're not that high up on the on the scale 
Um, well, I think um, what's interesting is that one of the reasons that we, we did this study is that state-owned enterprises are a huge source of emissions. So um, there was a study by Columbia University that looked at emissions from all SOEs, and it found that if you put all of the emissions from all the SOEs together, they're the high, it would be the second, if it were a country, it would be the second largest emitter after China. So mm -hmm. they have more emissions than any, any country in the world except China. Now, a lot of that comes from coal plants in China, but I think it shows you that um, state-owned enterprises, which are mostly in developing countries, are a, an important source of emissions um, that shouldn't be overlooked when we're, you know, focused more perhaps on the developing countries. I think that might be, you know, why there's more attention in, in some areas than others. But at the end of the day, the scope one emissions from the oil sector is only a small part of global emissions. And that's why I think there's more of a focus now on scope three, because when you look at scope three emissions, of course, it's a, it's a very big part of, um, of global emissions because, you know, the fuels that are burned are, are a major source of emissions. There's a few years ago, there, there seemed to be a, a push uh, in South America and I, and I can't recall from where specifically, but on, on biofuel production, um, is that is that still something that's being pursued on a on a broad scale or or does it carry um some some of its own issues with you know deforestation and and stuff like that well biofuels it continues to be the main market continues to be in brazil so mm -hmm. brazil has been a pioneer of sugarcane based ethanol since the 70s developing the technology second largest producer in the world of ethanol after the US. Um, and, and it continues to be very important, although the drop in oil prices really hurts ethanol because most people in Brazil have vehicles where you can just go to the pump and switch at any time between ethanol and gasoline. So as soon as gasoline gets a little cheaper, it, it totally erodes ethanol demand. And that's, mm. that's where we are right now. But those fluctuations have always existed. And you know I think the industry will bounce back. In other countries, there's more of a focus on biodiesel um, in Colombia, in some Central American countries, but it's not a it's it's not a huge industry or a huge part of it's not displacing a huge amount of fuel demand as it is in Brazil. And you also mentioned that I believe it was at Petro Amazonas that is doing renewable energy to power its own facilities, or was that someone else? It was Ecopetrol from Echo Colombia. Petrol. From Colombia, um, is there any is there any indication that 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 might spread beyond their own their own uh, needs to to you know feed some renewable energy into the national grid or even God forbid export it? To... They have said that they plan in the medium term to produce renewables for directly to consumers, so for third party consumption. Um, you know, I think it's going to be starting off on a small scale, but that is part of their plan. So they're following in the footsteps of, you know, YPF in Argentina, for example, which is actually an important producer of renewable energy um, and, mm -hmm. and is able to participate in, in the auctions for renewable energy. And so Ecopatrol says it wants to move in that direction. For now, it's not doing it. And, you know, we'll see how quickly it, it does this at scale. Uh, any, any others? 
showing the same ambitions at all? Um, no, not really. I mean, for the moment, there were plans. So, for example, Petrobras had some MOUs with some oil majors to develop uh, wind and solar, and it actually canceled them. And it's like, you know, like I said, the CEO has made comments saying they don't want to go in that direction. Not only has he said that, but they've also actually canceled their plans to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to happen in Brazil. It's certainly not going to happen in Mexico. Um, it, that's never even been proposed, uh, as mm -hmm. far as I know, and certainly not in Ecuador either. I mean, they are really not getting any further than switching from, you know, diesel to natural gas. There's no discussion of, of renewables, even for their own operations, not to mention for third parties. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I think that covers about everything that I was looking to, to cover. I'm wondering if you could just kind of encapsulate the effectiveness of, of national oil companies in bringing decarb efforts to Latin America. Is it working? Is there much more work to be done? Are we somewhere in the middle? I think there's much more work to be done. I think there have been some very good programs that the companies have implemented um, that have improved efficiencies and reduced emissions um, and, and very well done. But they're just specific targeted programs. And I don't think that there is a real broad strategy to address climate change and to position themselves for a possible future where they won't be able to produce so much oil. I mean, at some point, you know, I think we'll rely on oil for, for decades to come, but it'll be much more competitive. And so, you know, I don't think that these companies are sufficiently preparing themselves for a more competitive future. Some of them are discussing it, but none of them are taking serious steps. Um, none of them have specific targets to reach zero emissions, as some of the oil majors do. Um, and so I think that on balance, while there's been definitely some positive progress, I still think they're in the camp of a lot more needs to be done. Okay, thanks very much. Wonder if you could just, before we close off, if you could just uh, give our viewers uh, the uh, URL or the, the web address to access the report? Yes, so um, I think the whole URL is very long, but our yeah. organization, the Inter-American Dialogue, it's the dialogue.org slash energy and everything that we do, there are other studies, other event recordings and things, and all of that would be at the dialogue.org slash energy. So you can Excellent. Find Excellent. Thank you very much, Lisa. Uh, we've run out of our time limit here. I'd like to thank you for taking half an hour or so out of a probably a fairly slow Friday in Houston. But uh, And uh, we look forward to paying a bit more attention to what the NOCs are doing uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. Again, thanks very much. And uh, thanks for thanks for tuning in to Natural Gas World's In a Nutshell podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with a, another edition. Thank you, Dale. Thanks for the opportunity to speak Thank with you. Thank you, Lisa.